We have worked all the way, one degree or another, through the book of Romans, all the way up to Romans 8.33. Brandon asked me how many, on Tuesday, how many more messages. He wasn't going to be here today. He asked me how many more he th- or I thought I was going to do, and I told him, well, probably one more. I couldn't get beyond verse 33. So maybe there's going to be more than just one. Probably probably a lot more than just one. Let's let's try to get Paul's flow of thought here and start in verse 31. Romans 8:31, what then shall we say to these things? To what things, Paul? Well, the things he just said in verses 28, 29, 30, about the fact that all things work together for our good if we love God, if we're called according to his purpose, if we're foreknown, we're predestinated, we're we're called, we're justified, we're glorified. What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who, this is our verse for today, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who saved? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now how in the world could I think I could do all that in one sermon? That's crazy. This morning it's verse 33. What I want to try to do is have us get our arms around this. It's not long. It's only eight words in the Greek language. In English it sounds like this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Let me remind you of something right off. As as always with Paul, he's taking us somewhere. This verse is moving us in a certain direction. Out there, somewhere on the horizons, Paul is moving us ever closer and closer and closer and closer to something. What is it? What is it? What's this thing that awaits us? I'll tell you what it is. It is the word, therefore. 
Some of you are thinking, what in the world is he talking about? There's, the word therefore isn't even in there. It is the word therefore. Maybe you've read through the book of Romans and you've never really noticed the overall layout of this letter. Maybe you never really noticed that a dramatic shift takes place in this letter when Paul gets to Romans 12. Listen to this. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore therefore what he's saying is I appeal to you brethren as a conclusion of therefore as a result of the mercies of God what mercies of God? Everything He's been giving us in chapters 1 through 8 and all the way through 11 that we haven't got through yet. All these mercies. And I'll tell you, the chief of which, no doubt, is what we have right here at the end of Romans 8. And He says, I appeal to you, therefore, in light of these things, in conclusion to these things, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul is belaboring himself to the point that we might even be wondering if he thinks we're slow to grasp what he's telling us. He's literally been piling promise upon promise and glory upon glory, marvel upon marvel, unspeakable treasure upon unspeakable treasure. It's like he says over and over, Christian, feel this, feel this, feel this. Christian, in Christ, your search is over. It's done. You're not going to find some greater pleasure over the next mountain. You've got the full deal. No one, look, I'll tell you this, no one tries Christ and concludes that it's not all it's cracked up to be. No one goes there. No one who has once been ravished by His love goes and tries Buddhism. It doesn't happen. They may try another Christ or another religion, but they never try the true thing and go to anything else. Never. It doesn't. It can't. It's not conceivable for salvation to be any greater or any better than what we have if we are in Christ. But brethren... We are so slow to really grasp the fullness of this. It's almost like Paul has, has gives us Romans 8.28. Christian, Christian, I'm going to hit you with something massive. Every single thing in this life works out for your good. But it's like he looks at us. He says, man, they're all, they're like, Deer caught in the headlights. He sees us. We're there a, a bit dazed and disoriented. So he says, maybe they're not getting it. I know. I'll give them Romans 8.29. They're foreknown. They're predestinated. I'm going to tell them God has set His love on them from eternity past. But then he looks at us again. Still not certain if we're really getting it. So what? So here comes verse 30. I'll hit them with calling and justification and glorification. No! 
oh, they can't still be yawning. So here comes verse 31. God is for you. Verse 32, God spared not his own son for you. Verse 33, no charge can come against you. Brethren, I'll guarantee you that Paul is not quitting. And he keeps coming at us again and again and again and again because our Heavenly Father knows we are slow to get this. We are slow to feel this. We do have thick skulls. We have distracted minds. And we're so often very slow to believe. We're not. You have to admit this. We are not overly prone to live our lives camped up on top of this high, victorious summit of all these realities. Christian, are you really living with your head in these clouds? You know, we say things like this, all things will work out for our good. But then you know what we turn around and do? We turn around and go out. Christian, let me ask you this. Are you really getting this? Okay. How many times this week did you complain? How many times did you murmur or sulk or whine or feel sorry for yourself or bellyache or grouch about something, lament or get discouraged or depressed about your present circumstances? Let me ask you that honestly. I did. See, brethren, the therefore in chapter 12, it lies out there on the horizon. Paul knows where he's going. It takes us from all the wonderful mercies of God in Romans 8 and connects us with the radical life of Romans 12. Look, you've got to get this. If the mercies of Romans 8 are true, therefore, we live lives, radical lives, like we find in Romans 12. That's the point. How do we consistently live up to something like Romans 12.9? Look at it. How do you do this? How do you live this life? Let love be genuine. Look, I can take a tremendous mercy of God like Romans 8.33. No charge leveled against me shall stand. Therefore, you see the therefore carries through the whole chapter of 12, whole chapter of 13. All that we find before it is connected by this bridge and it takes us right out into this life. Folks, if no charge leveled against me can ever stick, Therefore, my love can be genuine. I don't have to be a hypocrite. When somebody slanders or charges or speaks evil, it doesn't stick on my record before God. So you know what? It doesn't have to stick on me either. The joy of this reality lifts me out of the pit of revenge and hurt and remorse and bitterness. I mean, you, you look at the life. Abhor what is evil. Romans 12.9 12, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. How do you live that way? 
We've got to feel the magnitude of God's salvation for us. It's not only for us to know and theoretically believe these truths. Paul intends for these things to explode out of us in the kind of life that can only be lived by people who really do have a sense of the glory and the security of these things. I mean, brethren, how do you lay it all on the altar for God? How do you become a living sacrifice where it's all for Christ? Nothing held back. No arrowhead collection held back. And you can look at that, and folks, you can smile at that, but you've had your own arrowhead collection. And you know it's true. How do we get to the place where we're able to forsake all? It has everything to do with that word, therefore. Y'all see what I'm saying? We must be able to bring Romans 8 and Romans 12 together. That's what Paul intends for us to do. This letter would have been read in one sitting by those brethren in Rome. They would have heard chapters 8 and 12 together. What I'm trying to say to you all is that we are about to look at Romans 8.33. And I want you to feel the liberty and the reality and connection that thunders at us through that Romans 12.1 word, therefore. Brethren, when I know that no accusation against me will ever stick. That frees me to love those making the accusation. One of you here has a father who has been railing upon you, said wicked things against you. Well, the thing is, none of those accusations will ever stick. Instead of going cold and numb and heartless, we can take all these glorious, merciful realities of this salvation God has poured on our heads and say, therefore, therefore, let me love my Father with a genuine love. And brethren, the thing is this. Oftentimes the accusations leveled against us are true. But they don't stick either. That's the glory of this. It's God that justifies. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a liberating and freeing and glorious reality because none of the accusations against us are ever true. They might very well be true. But, but that's not the point. Accusations and charges against us don't stick. Not because we're sinning. Or because we don't have faults. But because even in spite of our worst faults, our backslidings, our inconsistencies, our marred testimonies, we are still counted guiltless and none of the charges, even if they're true, can ever stain us in God's courtroom. It is God who justifies. So let's look more closely at Romans 8.33. This verse is short, it's construction simple, it's truth liberating. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So here's what I want you to think. Think courtroom. I get the idea here from the word charge. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Repeatedly in our Bibles, we see this word is used 
in regards to a legal term for bringing a formal accusation against somebody. Charging them with some misdeed or wrong or infraction of the law. The word actually appears seven times in our New Testament. It's found here in 8.33. And then six times in the book of Acts. Every single time it is used in the book of Acts, it's in reference to a formal charge made in a formal court proceeding. Just to let you get the feel of this, I picked one of, of the six out. Uh, Acts 19.38. Listen for the word here. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. And there's the word charges. So charge is an accusation brought in a court of law. Now, there's something else in Romans 8.33 that also makes us think courtroom situation. And it is the word justifies. Again, that is courtroom language. When a judge in a court of law gives his verdict, he will either do one of two things. What are they? Condemn or justify those against whom the charges are brought. That means he either finds them guilty or not guilty or innocent of the charges being brought against them. So there's the first thing. Imagine a courtroom. Next, let's see who's in the courtroom. Well, we know some of these folks that are in there, they go by the name of God's elect. They're the ones being charged. Who are God's elect? Elect means picked out or chosen. One of the, we really need to get this. One of the most basic fundamental facts about Christianity is this. Christians are not I know we got visitors here today, and I want you to hear this. The Bible teaches this. Christians are not Christians primarily because they choose God, but rather because God chooses them. This may be startling thought to some of you. Maybe you've never thought it this way before. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians a long time ago. He said this to them, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, for we know, brethren, loved by God, that He has chosen you. John 15, 16. Most of you well know Jesus' words to His disciples. You did not choose Me, but I chose you. Listen to me. It might strike us as strange. Now you guys think about this. It might strike us as strange that Paul would even call Christians God's elect in this verse. Why is that so strange? I think it's, it, it might strike us as, as a little bit odd because typically when Paul talks about justification, he speaks about what? Faith. But that is not what he does here. He's connecting our justification with our election. That is an unusual thought. You see, brethren, Paul does not say who shall bring any charge against those who believe in Jesus Christ because they're justified. That's not strong enough language for what Paul wants us to feel here. That would leave the position dependent on my belief. No. It's not what Paul's aiming at. 
He doesn't so much want you to view your perfect standing with God from the perspective of the faith you have in Christ as much as He wants you right here to see and sense and feel the security that God has chosen you to wear the righteousness of Christ. Christians, do you really walk around thinking this way? Do you think of yourself as the elect of God? The chosen? Do you really consider that you are a chosen race for God's own possession and that He chose you specifically to wear perfection? Do you realize how often Christianity is minimized to whether or not a person's made a decision for Christ or accepted Christ into their heart? People say, oh, he got religion. Or she, she prayed the sinner's prayer. You know what? Those are unworthy views of what Christianity is. These things make man the focus, cheapen God's salvation. Yes, you've got to believe. Yes, you've got to receive Christ. But I'll tell you, there's a deeper reality here. If you're one of God's chosen people, then because God is God, no one can ever rob you of that justified position. That's what he's focusing at. That's the point here. So if you have this image of a courtroom, you can imagine God's elect standing before the judgment seat. But they're not alone in the courtroom. God is there seated on the judgment seat. Abraham recognized the Almighty as him that wears the title of judge when he said, shall not the judge of the whole earth do right? God is the judge eternal. People today think very little about God as a judge. God is a celestial Santa Claus, yes. Or as an old man upstairs, yes. But little and few regard Him as the judge of all the earth. But God reveals Himself in the Bible as such. So, we've got this. God is on this exalted judgment seat the elect of God stand before Him. There's somebody else in this courtroom. The accuser. The one bringing the charge. Listen, when Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, he isn't at all assuming that no one does bring charges against God's elect. He's just assuming that whatever charge they bring will never stand. Yes, brethren, accusations definitely do come against us. The devil, what's he called? In Revelation 12.10, he's called nothing other than the accuser of the brethren or of our brethren. Christ said concerning men, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And Christian, you know as well as I do, besides the devil and besides men, you've got something else that accuses you. Your own own conscience so imagine lord god almighty sitting up on his judgment seat the elect of god standing before and over on the witness stand the accusers the devil and men and your own conscience and the accusations are flying now, let me tell you a little bit about how this courtroom operates Everything that is done in this courtroom is done according to law. Man's relationship to God is a legal one. How God relates to you 
has everything to do with whether or not you have kept His holy law. Sin is what you do when you break God's law. God Himself made this law. It's an expression of His own righteous character. This is His standard. It's of His making. And it governs His relationship with every one of you. Now listen. The Scriptures tell us this. Romans 2.13 The doers of the law will be justified. The doers of the law will be justified. And on the other hand, Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Look, in God's courtroom, all is impeccably unflawed. Absolute crystalline. Perfect. Blazing justice. God is perfect in His equity, impartial in His judgments, and exact in His assessments. And it is all in exact accord with the law of God. He perfectly knows the standard. He created it. And I'll tell you this, He perfectly knows how each of you measure up to that standard. He knows every fact, has perfect knowledge, can never be bought off, is not swayed in the slightest by your tears. Look, folks, you really need to understand this. Most people don't get this. They think that God is so loving that somehow He just sort of overlooks the fact that people break His holy law. Don't you dare believe that. People see the Lord God Almighty as this big pushover in the sky who looks at sinners and says, Oh, well, I know they've broken my law, but you know, they, after all, they are such special people and I can't really help myself but be nice to them and I think I'll just sweep their sin under the rug and forget about it. I want you to know this. Every sin, every sin you have ever committed must be dealt with exactly as the law demands. It must be. Or God Himself is unjust and unfaithful to His own law. This book says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, all things, every time, every day, every moment, all things, if you don't abide by everything written in this book and do them, you are cursed. In other words, you fail one time. You are cursed. No charge can be leveled in God's courtroom except on the grounds of law. Opinions and feelings and emotions don't matter in this courtroom. It is the rigid and exacting rule of law. Now here's another matter for you to factor into the whole courtroom picture. This court is in session now. So many people have this idea, well, they better clean up their life or else they're going to get in trouble one day with God when they die. They imagine God looking down from heaven on them right now with, you know, effeminate, teary-eyed, just hoping they'll come to Him. They think God is just tickled pink with them and has a wonderful plan for their lives, even though they're living in sin and wickedness. Let me tell you something. God's court is in session now. When it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He means now. 
It is God who justifies. Paul's whole point is that God's elect have already been justified. So no charge brought against them right now can stick because they're already justified. But I'll tell you this, God's word is just as plain on the other side of this. Whoever, John 3.18 says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Is that really sinking in? Every man, woman, and child in this room is justified or condemned already. God's judgment has already been made. If you have not trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, it isn't just a matter of things going bad for you at some point in the future. Man, you are condemned already. Already. God holds every single one of your infractions of His law against you. What are you going to say? Are you going to try to say that you've not broken God's law? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by Written in the book of the law. Have you kept all of God's law? No way. Without Christ, you are cursed and condemned already. Everyone wants to believe that God grades on a curve. But they're deceived. God grades on a straight scale all the time. That scale and that standard is His law, and you either get an A or you fail. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not waiting for a verdict. It has already been given. Now imagine this, folks. Imagine this. Feel the force of this. You're in God's courtroom. You come up and there He is, seated. You know you're guilty. You know you are. The accusers are over here. You know their accusations are right. You know you're guilty. The accusers know you're guilty. You stand there trembling in terror. The judge seated at the judgment seat perfectly knows your crimes. He knows those crimes more fully than your accusers do. Everything is done by the book here in this court. The law is rigid and unforgiving. You're done. You're done. You're forfeit. The sentence can only be death and damnation. The judge opens his mouth to utter the verdict. And suddenly, to your astonishment and bewilderment of the accusers and the gasp of all those present, the judge says, Innocent of every single charge. All of them. Do you think to yourself, I know I'm guilty. How can this be? God says, don't you know, I've chosen this one. He is one of my elect. And I have justified him through the blood of my own son who I personally crushed with the full weight of my wrath. Yes, I know this man sins well but it is no longer chargeable to him in my courtroom. It is God who justifies. 
If anyone dare bring a charge, God's voice thunders. There's absolute silence in that courtroom. I chose Him. I chose Him to be justified. That's what we saw back in verses 29 and 30. Those He foreknew, He predestinated. He predestinated, He called them. He called them, He justified them. I'll tell you what, if God set His affections on you, He's got you there. If you're one of His elect, it is God that justifies. If God says, this is my elect, I justified Him. You put a period at the end of that. It is done. Who's going to say anything? No charge against you is going to stand. There's no higher court. If God acquits you and declares you righteous in His sight, no one can appeal to a higher court. God's sentence is final. Beloved, Romans 8.33 is the remedy for all the indictments that come against us. Some of us become, and some of us are, are more inclined to this than others, but some of us, we're so inclined to self-indictment, so inclined to just over-self-examination and looking that where we can almost become paralyzed by these things. Or maybe, I know sometimes you grew up, you had a father, you had a mother, and they never had anything good to say, and it was all accusation, it was all fault-finding. And some of you, you're still under that today. You have parents like that. And it, it's, it, all it is fault that just rings in your ears. Maybe you have a spouse. All they do is criticize and they nag. I mean, what are you going to do with all these indictments coming upon you and against you? If you let them take you, they'll freeze you, they'll crush you, they'll numb you, they'll scare you. Then guess what? You never end up over in Romans 12. You'll never get there. Loving people the way you ought. Esteeming people the way you ought. Blessing people. Giving to people. Rejoicing. Living in harmony. Living peaceable. You'll rather withdraw. You'll become cold and sulking, self-protecting, defensive, hurting, useless. And here before us is this massive grace poured on our head for all accusations and charges. Will ever stick. Nothing. Sometimes we read texts, you know, you know the ones that say, Well, in in that last day we know we're going to be judged on every idle word. I want to tell you something. Christian, there won't be one to your charge. Not a single one. And sometimes we have this this idea that we're going to get to judgment day and Somehow there's still going to be a mess there for God to clean up. I'm telling you, the record is clean, folks. It's clean. That's what Christ did for you. That's why this is so freeing. That's why you don't have to live with this cloud over your head. That's why you can love people genuinely. You don't have to crawl in some little hole. Your whole life and fret and fear and cower. You can come out and you can boldly love people. Because you know in heaven, it's clean. Blood of Christ, wash this thing. I mean, brethren, can you really get a hold of this? Nothing will ever stick. Nothing will ever stand. Do you really believe it? I mean, we just sometimes we have to stand back and take a deep breath and just let the fullness of this really take hold of us. Never, ever will you be successfully charged with any fault before God. That's not to say that we don't do wrong things and have to live to the consequences of it in this life. I'm talking about God's courtroom here. 
We still sin. I do. You do. And yet in the presence of God, nothing stands. How many times has a voice spoken out against you in your lifetime? Whether you heard it or not. Whether the accusation was true or not. But God cries out, I am for them. Who's going to bring a charge against them? My elect. My elect. Brethren, folks, visitors, I'm not saying this to everyone. I'm not saying that this is for all men. Look, there are a number of you in this room right now, you hear my voice. You are condemned already in every single thing you do and all these accusations, they do stick. And there is a pile, there is a mountain, there is a fullness of sin that is building up and is ever increasing on your shoulders, a great mountain of this guilt, the measure of your sin filling up day after day after day. You're breaking His law and it's filling and it's going to come crashing down on your head very soon. You will prove yourself to be one of God's elect if you throw yourself entirely upon the mercies of God that erupt out of all that He's done for us in Christ, by His life, by His death to save sinners. Look, God offers you this pristine position of not being under the law anymore, but being under grace. He offers that. But folks, don't wait! God commands you to repent now. Today is the day of salvation. You're a week closer to your own damnation than you were a week ago when we met. You're a week closer to your own perishing. Those who wait, perish. Those who fall into the arms of Christ find paradise. This is, this is offered. Freely it's offered. That you can be put in a position where your record is washed clean totally by the blood of Christ. And now, even if God forbid, you come along and do an idiotic thing like David did and commit adultery, that black thing thrown against your record, it just splashes right off the blood of Christ and falls away can't stick. Let alone the accusations that aren't true. They can't stick. You see, that's the whole point. When it says God justifies, it means here is their record. It's blank. They're my chosen. I've got them in my hand. I hold their record. It will never be soiled again. My son's death and my crushing of him with my wrath guarantees it. It is clear. It is blank. It is spotless forever. Nothing touches this. And it's offered to you free. 